right. First and first and foremost, I'd like to give thanks and praise to God for the breath of life and the gift of sobriety. My name is Brother Vernon, and I am a recovered alcoholic. And I want to welcome anybody that's new to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and share with you from my experience in going through the 12-step program that is outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, what I used to be like, what happened, and what I'm like today. And I would be remiss if I didn't thank, uh, I believe it's Prig, for inviting me to come out to speak. Um, so to begin, uh, what it used to be like for me at the young age of five years old, I was exposed to adults drinking alcohol. And at that time, when I was exposed to them drinking alcohol, my father was giving these parties in this apartment complex that he used to manage. And during the interim of those parties, uh, they were drinking, they were smoking cigarettes, they were laughing, playing a lot of loud music, they were arguing, they were fighting, they were pushing one another probably inside the swimming pool, uh, and few gunshots or whatever rang out every now and then. But however, the children were always isolated in the bedroom away from the adults so that they wouldn't get caught up with listening to the profanity that was being used. And I'm grateful that that happened at that time because oftentimes, as this appears today, children are around adults. They're picking up the language that the adults use. And then at some time or some place in their lives, they start using that very same language towards their parents and their parents are looking at them like, where did you get that from? You know, and want to beat them and whip them. So uh, as I was isolated in the bedroom, the only time that my parents would call me out the bedroom during those parties was to dance in front of their guests. And I was an avid fan of James Brown. So I used to like to imitate the way that he danced. And I did it so well that they would always call me out, play one of the records, I dance, I get the applause, and then I get sent back in that bedroom. I would go back in the bedroom and watch TV until I pass out and go to sleep to be prepared and ready to go to school the next day. I can tell you that at a very young age, I grew up having resentments, which I did not know what resentments were until I came to AA. And what I found is that I used to wet in the bed and wetting in the bed, I used to get whipped, you know, in the morning when my mother come in there and smell the piss or whatever, or the stench of the piss, she would whoop me. She would have me to take off the sheets, off the mattress, take off those pissy clothes, get in the tub and bathe. And so for many days I got whooped from doing that. And and all I can remember is that at the time that I probably did wet in the bed, it wasn't that I was lazy where I wouldn't get up, is that I was in that dream state where I always felt that I was already in the bathroom. And so she didn't understand. She never took me to the doctor to have me examine to find out if I had some type of medical uh, ailment or not. And this continued on for a long time. Then I started picking up resentments because my mother started treating me with these uh, ill uh, feelings and emotions where she would do certain things to me because I was named after my father. Now, at this time, my father was incarcerated in jail for three years, seven months and 13 days. And during that time, my mother was very protective of me and my siblings. I have two other siblings beside myself and we would have to stay in the house and watch the kids play outside in this uh, uh, park, in this uh, housing projects where we had moved to. And we would have to look out the window and see them playing, having fun. And we picked up resentments as a result of that, too. But there came a time when I guess my mother met someone and during that time she allowed us to go outside and play with the other children and i ran amok i got involved in a whole lot of stuff that i had no business doing uh 
only because I felt that I was set free. I would have sex with some of the girls from my elementary school at their parents' house while they were gone to work. I would break into certain things like factories and stuff along the train tracks. Uh, they had the ice cream factory, the pickle factory. They had the furniture factory, the hot wheel factory. I would ride the train down to the ice cream factory and to that Budweiser uh, factory that was close in proximity. And anytime that the ice cream man would come in our neighborhood, we would always uh, run him off from his truck. And we would take all that ice cream and we would take it home and stick it in the freezer. And my mother would ask, where did we get that from? And I would tell her a lie and say that they gave it to us, you know, not being honest. Um, however, I was also forced to go to church against my will. You know, uh, it was the will of my mother that wanted us to go to church. So she was of the Catholic persuasion and we would go to church and she would send us off by ourselves. And at that time, there was a little corner market down the street from the church. I would go in there before going to the church. I would steal cookies and chips and candy and sit in that choir room in that church and eat and not receive none of the message that that priest was sharing. Uh, I couldn't grasp none of the understanding of what they were really talking about other than we were taught how to pray. My first prayer that I remember that I was given was, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And I believe that that was a protective prayer that kept me safe during the times that I was running amok and getting into things. Uh, however, sitting in this church, I'm looking at all of these adornments on the walls and um, I'm seeing all of these statues all over the place. And I remember reading in the Bible at one time, they says, don't worship any statues and any idols. And I couldn't understand why we was praying the statues and idols because they wasn't talking back to us. You know, and also uh, looking at all of these adornments on the ceiling in that church, they were all angels, but all of them were one of one ethnic group. They were all white and I couldn't understand that. So you telling me that if I die and I go to heaven, that the only people that's up there are these Caucasian people. I couldn't believe that, you know, so I had a problem being in that church and with those issues. But as time passed, uh, you know, uh, I had my first drink at the age of five, like I said, during them parties, because what happened was the next morning when I woke up and walked into that living room, I saw cups, cans and bottles and ashtrays sitting all over the apartment. And as any young adolescent at the age of five, they always go exploring, looking for new something, right? Looking for something to get into. So I went looking in those cups that were sitting on that coffee table, and I saw a clear substance in it. And the only three clear substances that I knew of was water, 7-Up, and castor oil. So I knew it wasn't no castor oil, but I didn't know if it was 7-Up or not, I didn't know if it was water. But when I picked up that cup and I turned it up to my mouth and I began to drink it, it went down through my esophagus and it hit the pit of my stomach and I gurgitated everything right back up. Later on to find out that I had picked up a cup of Seagram Gin straight. So the drink idea, I aborted it at that time. So I didn't drink for a long period of time until I started going to junior high school. Now in junior high school, I had some associates that I used to be with and we would leave the campus at lunchtime and go to the nearest liquor store. And we would piece up our lunch money and we would request from one of those guys standing outside that store if he would go in there and buy us something to drink. Now, we were told that Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill was sweet. So we requested that and we drank it. It went down. It gave me a sensation. It changed the way that I felt. I went back to the school, went to the noon dance that we had because we used to always have noon dances. But I would be the type of person that would stand against the wall just watching everybody else dance. You know, having that fear of, 
being rejected after asking one of them girls if they wanted to dance. But this particular day, after getting that Bones Farm strawberry heel in my system, I asked one of them if they would like to dance, and if they accepted, they got a pass. But if they rejected me, I told them what they could do with themselves. So, needless to say, the Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill worked for a while, and I found out that it's only about 7% proof alcohol in its contents, so it really wasn't toxic. So, after it stopped working, though, I had to upgrade. Now, and I'm sharing this aspect of my disease because they taught me when I came to AA that this is a progressive disease. So the progression of my disease is that I switched from the Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill to Richard's Wild Iris Rose, Mad Dog 2020, Silver Satin and Kool-Aid, Night Train, Tyrolean Wine, White and Red Port Wine. Now when I started drinking the beer, uh, what I was exposed to was watching television. In the late 60s and early 70s, they had a lot of beer commercials on television out here in California. So I started looking at these beer commercials and they had St. Ives, Slits, Coke 45, Budweiser, Michelo, uh, Corona, um, what else did they have? They had Old English 800, Slits Small Liquor Bull. And so what attracted me was Slits Small Liquor Bull has the power. I didn't realize that I was looking for some power. But... When I tried to slit small liquor bull, it gave me the power to do certain things. Like, for example, I would see guys going to school and they would get jacked for their lunch, lunch money. So the boom, uh, the slit small liquor bull, what it did for me, it gave me the courage to stand up and not to allow them to jack me for my lunch money. Or I would walk to school with a stick or a bat. So if they came up to me trying to rob me or something, then I would give them what they wanted, right? Which is not my money, but that whooping uh, with that bat or something. Um, so after I moved from the, uh, from the housing projects where we stayed at, we moved to South Central LA. And on that side of town, they were drinking my drink, Slits Mall Liquor Bull. They were also drinking Old English 800 which I later on found out that Old English 800 malt liquor was uh, created or designed after slavery. And there's a coding on its label that's an indicator. They had 32 kings and rulers that was involved in the slave trade. They also sold the bottles for like 25 pences and so if you do the math, 25 and 32 equal 800, and that's how many slaves they were packing in the slave ships when they saw that it was monetary gain to be made from enslaving people. So I had no idea that I was supporting slavery any time that I bought Old English 800. So, uh, but I was a guzzler. I used to buy the can, tall cans, 16-ounce cans, the quarts, the 32 ounces, and the 40 ounces of beer. And any time that I turned up either one of those cans, bottles, or whatever, when I pulled it down from my mouth, the bottle had to be empty. Because I used to like to listen to that gloom gloom sound that you hear coming from those water coolers, right? Gloom 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 gloom. So I became a guzzler. And I fell in love with drinking Old English 800. And I put in a lot of miles in not my neighborhood, but someone else's neighborhood. Because I used to always stay, in somebody, stay and hang out in somebody else's neighborhood rather than my own. But I would put in 2,000 miles going around the block, around the block, around the block, around the block every day. Right? Uh... We would find ourselves drinking all day long, smoking weed all day long. I would find myself going to the supermarket or to that uh, Rite Aid, or what we call today, they call it Rite Aid today, but it was called Thrifties back then. So in my in this particular neighborhood, they had a Thrifties in, on one side and the Rouse Market on the other side. I would go to the Thrifties Market uh, Thrifty's drugstore, and I would interview the security guard. I would ask him where he got his job at, how much he get paid, and I would tell him what I would do if I was in his position. 
I said, if I was in your position, I'll be sitting back there in that back booth in the back of the store and wait to get paid every two weeks. I said, if my people came in here and stole something, I wouldn't even mess with them, right? Because it don't belong to me. So after interviewing that security guard, the next day I come in the store, he's sitting in that back booth. So I come in the store with my associates from my neighborhood. We would have paper bags stuck in the waistband of our pants and I would have them take out the bags and I would literally walk into this Rite Aid or this Thrifty's drugstore and walk behind the counter, grab all the fifths that I can get, get all the little mixed drinks, the malt duck, the, uh, the little... Uh, pina coladas and everything that they sold, screwdrivers and all of that, and I would put the, put it in the bag and close the bag up and then I would tell them to grab a bag and walk behind me and don't even worry about nothing. And we would walk straight out that store with all of this liquor and go in the neighborhood and drink all day and all night long. Now, and I did this for about nine months straight every day. So we were drunk nine months straight every day. You know, I had drink off contests with people where I would drink a, a full cup of Bacardi Rum 151 with a slit small liquor bull or Old English as a chaser. And I would be the last man standing, right? But when that alcohol hit me, I would stagger down the street. I would pass out in somebody's lawn, wake up the next day, found out that I was in my brother's low rider car with the car cover over it and didn't know how I got there. So that's what you call blackouts. Now, I'm a, I didn't share so much about what it used to be like and what happened to me, but here's what happened. When I arrived, to, prior to me arriving to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was incarcerated in jail out here uh, in the state penitentiary for 13 months. And during that time, I had a significant other in my life, and she would write me letters telling me that she was in treatment. And so I didn't know what treatment was, what she was talking about, but she said for her alcoholism. I thought that was a good thing because she used to drink Budweiser beer every day and smoke PCP. So she really had a problem. I had to find out why was she drinking like she was drinking and smoking like she was smoking every day. And later on, she revealed to me that she was sexually molested by her stepfather from a young age all the way to her adulthood. So she was trying to self-destruct, and I'm trying to be a savior, right? I'm trying to help her to address her issues. <clears throat> However, we got together, but during the time of my drinking, I was summoned to my mother's apartment. I was on a three-day run. She accused me of taking my uh, jewelry off the dresser that belonged to my sister. As the big book talk about, we sent out this emotional appeal, which doesn't suffice. So I begged her, I pleaded to her, I lamented to her, and I literally end up in a fetal position telling her that I didn't have nothing to do with it and my mother couldn't find it in her heart to believe me. That devastated me. When I stood up on my feet, she said, boy, you need to get you some help. My response to her, if anybody needs some help, you need to go and get you some help. And she looked at me with this estranged look she thought I had lost my mind, in which I later on found out that I did. Uh, however, she dropped her head and walked out that bedroom. <clears throat> when she came, when she walked out that bedroom, I heard a loud, audible voice. And I believe it was the voice of God. And that voice said, how dare you speak to your mother in that manner? Here's a woman that fed you, clothed you, housed you, took care of you for three years, seven months, and 13 days, made sure you got an education, and you dare to stand up here and talk to her like that? You do need some help. I went to the telephone. I called up that significant other. I asked her if she knew a treatment center that I can go into. She gave me the number. I called it. They said that they only had one bed space available. I said one bed space, not five, not six, not seven, one. That, mean, that meant to me that that one bed space was meant for me and me alone. So they asked me to get down there expeditiously or else someone else would get that bed space. So I left walking, my, walking from my mother's residence 
and I got about six blocks away. There were some guys working street maintenance. I asked one of them if he had a dollar, and he looked at me with hesitation, and he said, what you want it for? And I told him I wanted it to catch the bus to get to this treatment center, and he gave it to me. But he still looked at me as if I was lying. So as they worked on that corner, I stood on that corner and waited for the bus. When the bus arrived, I boarded it and I got to that treatment center. They interviewed me when I got there. <clears throat> the first question that the gentleman asked me, am I an alcoholic? And I said, no. And he said, well, you can't come up in here. This facility is for alcoholics only. Then my answer changed. Yes, I'm an alcoholic. And the reason why I say that I wasn't an alcoholic because <clears throat> I was driven in the rooms, excuse me, <clears throat> driven in the rooms under the lash of cocaine. But yet and still, I never looked at the fact if I was an alcoholic or not. But once I got there, I thought I had told them a lie and said that I was an alcoholic, but I was actually telling them the truth. Because everything that began with me and ended with me began and end with alcohol. So I get there. They tell me to work my own program. I don't know what they meant by that other than whatever I was programmed with all my life. Right. But that's not what they meant. They was meant they meant to work my own 12 step program. So we started going to groups. I started listening to the people share. There were people in there that was using a lot of profanity. Every other word in their message was of profanity. And it was a turnoff to me because you told me recovery was about a change. So I remember going in the quietness of my room uh, that I was assigned to. And I asked God in prayer to please remove any profanity from my message. So that when I deliver the message, it will not turn off people, but it make people more receptive to the message. And he did it. And I began to open myself up and share with them my experience. However, we, I had two spiritual experiences in my first month. The first one was, I used to make the store runs for the guys from time to time. We would alternate and change. So I went to the store one day to get their cookies, chips, and candy. I had to walk past the beer box to get to the soda box. But the miracle was I didn't desire to buy a 40 ounce of Old English 800, which was my drink of choice. So I put the stuff on the counter and I, and I paid for it. And as I walked out the store, my brother happened to be right outside the store at that particular location. I had told no one where I was going and what I was doing. And I couldn't understand for me, how is it that he shows up right here at this present moment? But at that time, he dangled some keys in front of him. And I said, what's that for? He said, you see this car sitting right here? I said, yeah. He said, I got that for you. I couldn't believe it because I, this is a brother that I had burnt many times because he was in the dope game or whatever that you want to call it. And he was making a lot of money and he came up and he always wanted for me what he wanted for himself. But I couldn't pull it off because I was the one that always wanted to smoke and wanted to drink. So um, my second spiritual experience, I was gone somewhere. I had went somewhere, and when I came back on the grounds of the facility, my roommate met me. And he said, Vernon, would you like to go to church tonight? And I said, I have plans on taking some of the guys to a meeting in, this, in my car, right? And so he said, okay, maybe next time. And I said, yeah. He said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure you can. He said, have you ever accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And I said, of course, man, I did the Our Father, the Hail Marys, the, the Confirmation and everything, the Catechism and everything at the Catholic Church. He said, no, that's not what I mean. I said, well, could you explain yourself? And he said, sure. He says, have you ever uttered the words out of the book of Romans by word of mouth where you confess that the Lord Jesus Christ is your personal Savior? And I said, no, sir. And he said, would you like to? Now, I'm in recovery. I'm open. I'm open to any ideas, right? 
So we held hands and he recited the words and I repeated them. And when I got to the last word, a strong sensation ran through my body from my head to my toes and back up to my head. And I felt safe and protected from that moment. It felt as if I was anointed with some power and some energy from some unknown source. And so the area where I got sober at, it was called the Black Bottom of Watts. And it's a festered environment. And the reason why I say it's a festered environment because they had whores, prostitutes, gang members, sherm heads, uh, heroin addicts, alcoholics, you name it, they was all in this environment. So as I stood out in front of that facility, I felt as if I was in the valley of the shadow of death. But I said, I'll fear no evil. I said, if I can stay sober here, clean and sober here, then I can stay clean and sober anywhere. So as I began to attend those outside meetings, I went to a particular meeting one day at my home group, which is 9604 Alano Club in South Central LA. And I witnessed a woman taking a cake for 28 years of sobriety. And I remember the people telling me, they said, you know what? Only two people out of the room of 75 people is going to be successful in making in recovery. Now, I don't know who the other person was, but I knew I was one of them. And when I watched that person celebrate that 28 years of sobriety, I said, I'm going to get that. But I wouldn't tell nobody. I said it to myself. So one day at a time, God had allowed me to acquire 28 years of uninterrupted sobriety without relapse. I have never relapsed. As the big book states, it says when Alcoholics Anonymous began, 50% of the people recovered at once. Well, I'm of that 50% group. Then they said another 25% after some relapses, they came back and they stayed on. So that's 75%. Then it said the remaining 25%, it said two out of three of them came back as time passed. So I did the math. Two-thirds of 25% is 16%. 16% plus 75% is 91%. So there's a 91% success rate of people recovering under the umbrella of this idea of recovery. But yet and still, you got that 9% loser group, right, that's either in denial having fallen out of love with drinking, or just outright, just defiant and rebellious, right? So thank God that I wasn't a part of that group. But they said, a wise man learned from others, a fool learned from himself. So they told me to watch the passing parade. I didn't know what they meant by that, but what I come to understand, that that was a metaphor that they was using to describe people going in and out, in and out, in and out of these rooms. So I sat back and I watched. I waited until some of them came back. Everybody didn't make it back. Some of them died, but those that made it back, they didn't come back and say they had a nice time. They came back with either their teeth missing out of their mouth, badly mangled, arm in a cast, wheelchair, something. Something devastating, right? So I was grateful that God kept me sober under his grace and mercy for four years in an untreated state and condition. Now, not, you need to hear me. I said in an untreated state and condition. Now, how is it that I'm in an untreated state and condition? Well, I had commitments and I did a lot of meetings, but I didn't have a sponsor. So when I was taking a cake for four years of sobriety, not sobriety, I said sobriety, they said when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. This man shared his experience, strength, and hope with me that particular night. And what he shared with me parallel with the way that my life was at that moment. I asked that man if he would sponsor me. He said, sure he would. He gave me my first instruction. He said, Vernon, I want you to go get a pen and a piece of paper and come back. And I want to give you this prayer. And I want you to write it down. And I want you to go home and say this prayer 15 times a day or more every day for the next two weeks before we start in this big book. And I... So I wrote the prayer down, and the prayer went something like this. God, please set aside everything I think I know about the big book, the 12 steps, the program, my disease, myself, 
and especially you, God, for an open mind and a new experience with the big book, the 12 steps, the program, my disease, myself, and especially you, God. And when we finally sat down, everything that he was revealing to me out of the big book was all new. I didn't understand that the circle and the triangle was an ancient symbol. I didn't understand that that circle and triangle for AA represents me, body, mind, and spirit, becoming a whole person is if I'm all one. If I'm treating each part of my disease in equal proportions, then I become like that circle, a whole person. That whole circle is 360 degrees. Each angle on that triangle is 120 degrees, which is equivalent to the 360 degree circle. So, wisdom. I'm starting to receive wisdom. So, I started looking at my condition and I did a spiritual autopsy, right? A spiritual autopsy because you told me this was a spiritual program. So, I'm finding out that physically, I was filthy, funky, nasty, sneezy, and greasy in the physical. I didn't exercise. I didn't go to the doctor. I didn't have my eyes examined. I didn't have my teeth checked. I didn't have no medical checkup physically so I was in an unwholesome condition physically now to treat my mind they told me I need to take my mind to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and this is where I would re acquire a foundation in recovery which is outlined in the first 164 pages of the big book they said you treat your spirit Vernon by being of service help someone commit to something secretary treasure chip person coffee person whatever emptying ashtrays washing ashtrays mopping the floor just be of service in some type of way and if you do all three of these things in equal proportions then you will become a whole person instead of a fragmented person because a fragmented person is one that's sitting in the meeting, he ain't listening, his mind is way across town thinking about baby, or he's looking at the women walking around in the rooms looking and lusting. That's a sick man. And I didn't want to be sick like that. So I began to implement all of these three aspects of recovery, which are the three pillars of recovery that uphold the idea of recovery. They said this is a spiritual program. What is spiritual? It says the definition for spiritual pertaining to the human soul and the human spirit as opposed to anything monetary or physical of this world. Recovery has nothing to do with the house, the car, the job, the jewelry, the girlfriend, none of that. This pertains to my human soul and my human spirit because it has been broken. It has been contaminated. So I need the antidote to treat my sick self. And you gave it to me. You said the antidote for a sick person is the 12 steps of recovery. That is your medication. Take it daily as prescribed and you will get well, not cured. So as I did the spiritual autopsy on myself, I looked into my body and saw that I had that thing. I call it the thing. It's like a parasite. They call it the allergy. I got it. I have it. There's no doubt about it. Once I put a drink into my body, my body takes over and my mind dismisses anything that my body tried to transmit to me. You know, I had a person that used to share like this. They said, if you take a drink and you pour it into your mouth and it enters your body, you just well cut your head off and sit it over there on the, ta on the table because your mind is not going to mind your body once you get started. And I believe it. Because my body takes over once I take a drink. I don't ascribe to what some of you all talk about around these rooms. You talk about that there's a drink waiting on you if you don't do the 12 steps of recovery. I don't ascribe to that. Why? Because that is a preconceived notion and a preconceived idea. If God tells me in the big book that he will remove the thought from my mind to drink and use, then how is it that I can have a preconceived idea or notion that I'm going to drink one day? I can't do that. Why? 
because it's it's like having a reservation to go somewhere, right? You make a reservation to go to the restaurant, but you know the time and the date when you're going to have that reservation. But here in Alcoholics Anonymous, if you have a reservation to drink, you don't know the time nor the day when you're going to take that drink. And before you know it, you'll be right out there again. So the big book taught me, I can't afford to have any lurking notions nor reservations. I claim what I claim because I am a believer. I claim it. If you claim it, you can achieve it. You know, one of my first mentors told me, he said, Vernon, close your eyes. He says, you have a photographic memory. He says, envision yourself being clean and sober. Okay, I see myself. He says, once you see it, claim it. Then when you claim it, he says, work towards it and it will become manifested in your being. Now, why do we have the 12 steps? We have the 12 steps because it is a law. It is a rule. The 12 steps is like a ruler, right? A straight rule, a straight path, right? To get to who? To get to that higher power. Well, how do you get to the higher power? They said, they asked me but two questions. Do I believe or am I willing to believe? So I had to look at some of my past experiences. What got me out of getting shot? What got me out of getting killed or handcuffed? What got, what power intervened in my life that protected me from such tragedies when I know that I should have experienced them? What happened? Something was working behind the scenes that I didn't even know. So I started having different spiritual experiences with the steps. You know, they talk about being powerless in the first step. The real powerlessness for me is this. I cannot stop a negative thought from entering my mind at any given moment. That is real powerlessness. So if I'm really powerless to that degree, then I need a power greater than myself to guard my mind and protect me from these negative thoughts so that I don't act on them. I needed that higher power to deliver me from my disease because I could not deliver myself from this disease. Yeah, they tell you all you need to have is a desire to stop drinking, but it takes more than a desire to recover. It takes a willingness as it states in the big book, in how it works, the second paragraph, it says, we're going to disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened to us, and what we're like now. Then it says, if you want what we have, and you are willing, so there's one of the key words, I have to become willing, then I'll be put in the position to be ready to do what? It says, take the steps take the steps. So the steps is the requirement, is the prerequisite for recovery. If you don't think that you need to do the 12 steps, keep doing what you're doing and you're going to keep receiving what you always got. Nothing changes if nothing changes. But change is constant. So everything is constantly changing. Right? Nothing remains the same. It either gets worse or it gets better. You know, so uh, there's a lot that I can share with you from the joys and the fruits of recovery. You know, I found out that I suffer from illusions and delusions. I suffer from mental blank spots. I suffer from uh, the lack and the proportion and the ability to think straight when I got here. But today I can think straight. I don't have to deviate from my thoughts today. You know, if I have an idea or a thought, I carry it all the way through to its end. But when you abort this idea of recovery, you sentence your own self to death. It's like looking at any woman that has a child. If she abort that child, she sentences that child to death. So I use the same analogy for my recovery. If I abort the process of recovery, then I just will sentence myself to death and get me a plot at Harrison Ross I mean, at uh, Angela's funeral home or whatever, some cemetery or something. I just will do that. You know, we try to dress up the outside 
to make it appear like we're recovering, but I'm here to let you know, you can dress up, anybody can dress up a corpse. They do it all day long at the funeral parlors. So some of us is dressed up in these rooms, but we really dead on the inside. You know, and the reason being is because we're not connected to a source in the power. How can I not be connected to a source in the power that created me and knows what's best for me and can regulate and guide my affairs for me safely through these troubled times? Corona, the coronavirus didn't affect me like it affected so many people that I heard that relapsed or either died. I'm isolated at home. But I'm at peace. I'm not bored. Some of us mistaken peace for boredom. Or oh, I'm bored. Or oh, I'm lonely. No, it's for a moment of reflection to look and see how is your relationship with your higher power? How is your relationship with yourself? Do you talk to yourself? Are you still going crazy? What is it about you? You know, uh, I didn't went through all kind of hardships. I've been married twice, divorced twice. I lost my newborn in the first year of my recovery. I didn't drink. I didn't use. I've been back to jail to clear up the wreckage of my past. I get released. I don't drink. I don't use. I've been homeless. I've been without money. I had money. I'm a high school dropout, but I became a college graduate. I lost my mother two years ago. I lost my niece last year, you know, but I don't drink and use behind these things. I've been back through the 12, I went through the 12 steps to clear up the wreckage of my past. And in doing so, I was able to go back to the people that I caused harm to and that I gave a peace of my mind to. And I got my peace of mind back from them. So now I got a whole mind. Thank God I don't have, I'm not in here with just a peace of mind but thank god that he left me with a peace of mind to accept this idea and believe that it can work for me too the only person that disbelieves that this idea don't work is the one that have not embarked upon the 12 steps of recovery because you'll find out that it works if you work for it this is not for lazy people this idea is not for the strong. This is for the weak. So in your weakness, you will find that you will get strength. From your lack of courage, you will find that you receive courage. You know, so there's, uh, there's a whole lot to be experienced. I'm still involved in being experienced. I come to AA like going to a classroom, like going to school. I enter to learn, but I depart to serve. That's my duty, is to help other people. So I have to serve them. So if I am a servant of God, then I will be found being mindful of my duty and helping someone else to see the light of truth. Now, and I use my G-O-D in different aspects. I came here with the G-O-D, gift of desperation, it transcended over to a group of drunks. From that, I got good orderly directions. From that, now I'm involved in the guidance of development. That's my G-O-D. I take the 12 steps because the 12 steps in acronym terms is the solution to every problem sober. That's the solution. Now, if I'm in the solution, I'm in oneness with God. But if I'm not, then I'm in oneness with the devil. Now, the devil has his acronym terms to describe who he is. The devil means destroy everything valuable in life. Or shall I say, do you have hope? If you're using hope as a measuring stick for your recovery, then you are helping other people every day that is the hope they say when all else fail get a newcomer work with them it will help save the day and expel any thought from drinking alcohol this is what's all in the big book so don't be mad at me now if you got a problem with this higher power god fella 
then why don't you try this? I'm going to send you to a source in power that's greater than yourself. You got a lamp in your house? Turn the light on. When the bulb light up, unscrew it. Lick your finger, stick it into the socket, and I guarantee you that's a power greater than yourself. See, one of the most mysterious force and power in the universe is electricity. They don't know its source nor its origin, where it originates from, but it is constant. It is constant just like the Spirit of God, where God was able to set up a law called life and death. Well, how is it that God is always omnipresent in the world and God never dies? Because he creates other human beings like you and I to deposit his spirit, his energy into that we live. Simply amazing how he escaped the law of death for himself. Mm. So the essence of my being is the essence of God. And that is called the spirit. And the spirit is the same thing as energy. So I'm like a branch from a vine, which I am an extension of God. So when I look at you and you look at me, we should be looking at God because he said it in one of his books. He said, ye be all gods, children of the most high God. You just a little G, but we've been trying to act like the big G. See, but if I stay right size and stay in my place and stay humble to this idea, humble to the power, then I can receive the abundance of whatever this life has to present to me. It told me in my big book, when I took such a position, what position? That God is the head of my life. He becomes my employer, my teacher, my principal, my director, and I become his agent. It said when I took that position, it says all sorts of remarkable things follow. He provides, it didn't say I provide, it said he provides all that I need, providing that I perform his work well and keep close to him. So, if you got a problem with yourself, maybe you might want to abandon yourself because in the third step, it says it like this, God, I offer myself to thee. To do what? To build with me and to do with me as thy wilt. It says, relieve me of what? The bondage of self. So who has you in bondage? Not alcohol, not drugs, but you. You have your own self in bondage. It said, relieve me of the bondage of self that I may have Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may have victory over them who may bear witness of those that I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always, not my will. I abused it. I abused my will, and I lost the will to care about anything and anybody. So I was actually a dead man walking. No aim, no purpose. <laughs> You know, so don't, so you may want to stop lying to yourself and telling yourself you don't need nobody because that is the biggest lie that is told by some people. You need somebody to get your groceries from, you need somebody to get your clothes from, your shoes from, your car from, something, your apartment from. You need somebody other than yourself because I am not the manufacturer of none of those corporations. So the moment I start telling the truth, the moment I start getting free, that's what they taught me. When you know the truth, the truth will not only set you free, it will make you free. So I guess my time is up. I don't know, cause I can go on for hours. I can speak to you all from, for the next six hours about recovery in the broad sense that I've experienced in the last 34 years. I can't tell it all in 20 minutes, you know, because it's too much to be said. But I'm here to let you know that recovery is available to those who 
want it, not those who need it. You have to have a want and be willing to do something different to get something different. You know, so uh, I hope I haven't said anything to offend anybody. And if I have, they taught me also truth is like a rock. You know how they use it in the Christian persuasion. Jesus is my rock. He's the truth. He's the light. He's the way. Well, the truth is that I'm an alcoholic. The light come on when they say probably no human power could relieve me of my alcoholism. And the way is that God could and would if he was sought. Same trinity. Same thing. So if I, so if I took a rock of truth and I threw it into a pack of people, the only person that's going to holler is the one that got hit. So maybe if it's hitting so many people at one time, maybe it got busted up where them different fragments is hitting somebody, right? <laughs> but be not dismayed. The great reality is that God is deep within each and every one of us. If you are breathing, God is present. When you're not breathing, God is absent. So breathe. Take in the breath of life. Enjoy the spirit and the fruits of recovery. But keep coming back. We don't ask people to stay. We ask you to keep coming back. Because for me to tell you to stay and you don't stay the first time, you may not feel welcome to come back. But if you drink, no drink, job, no job, woman, no woman, but you keep coming back, you still have an opportunity to acquire that which you desire for your life. So I want to thank each and every one of you all for lending a critical ear to what I had to say. And I pray that God can bless you on this journey during this troubled time and get to the other side because it is troubled times. I don't know about you, but something is happening in the world. And I need to be vigilant, conscious, alert, and aware at all times. So thank you all so very much. May God bless you all. Thank you for letting me share.